Last week we looked at the first three verses, and today the verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 cover two different topics. There are two different topics mentioned here. As you go through the, the chapter, chapter 13, there are really a list of duties given before the conclusion of the chapter, uh, both moral and religious. Uh, the first six verses really detail the, the moral obligations, the moral duties that are being <clears throat> taught to these people. They're being exhorted and encouraged. Verses 4 through 6, though, deal with two topics. They both start with the letter M. I bet you could figure them out pretty quickly. Verse 4 deals with marriage, and verses 5 and 6 really deal with money. Marriage and money. And these are really two major topics. As you go through Scripture, you see what the Scripture has to say. There's much said about both of these topics. And, you know, there are great pressures, great societal pressures in each of these areas. We talked about um, covetousness and contentment in the Bible study hour. But we live in a world where there is great pressure, great pressure against our morals and also dealing with money and covetousness. There's these temptations. In this context, you're really these temptations are such that if a believer is not on guard, it can lead to a departure from faithfulness. And again, that's the theme. The theme of this book is being faithful to the faith, faithful to the faith which Christ has completed. He has finished the faith. If you see in your Bible, depending on what version you may be using, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. I just read you the King James Version. <clears throat> the New American Standard Version sounds a little different. King James Version kind of sounds like a statement saying this, that marriage is honorable and God is going to judge whoremongers and adulterers. The New American Standard translates it this way. Marriage is to be held in honor among all And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. One sounds more like a statement, the other sounds more like an admonition. uh, So there's kind of two different flavors there given through the translation, and that's just the interpretation that's been given by the translators. If you're looking at the New American Standard, uh, there are words that are in italics, which, of course, are just added to aid in the understanding. Without those italics, it would be marriage in honor among all, and the bed undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So, you, like I said, you may be looking at a different translation, but we really want to see here what is the Scripture teaching us in this verse. <clears throat> Obviously, we're looking at marriage. And I really believe that it is an admonition because it is followed by a great warning. It's followed by whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So what does the Scripture teach us about marriage? Well, there's a lot that the Scripture has to teach us about marriage, and there's a lot more than is just found in the context of this verse. 
But this topic demands that we look at many of these principles. And so today I want us to do that. <clears throat> what is marriage? Now that's a good question. What is marriage? There's a lot of people out there today that seem to be a little confused about what the definition of marriage is. Well, the fact is, marriage is defined by the one who created that institution. God is the one who created marriage. He designed it. And so, by definition, it is what God created it to be. And anything else really is a perversion. We want to really know, understand what marriage is. We have to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. It talks about Adam and Eve and God putting together there the first couple. Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, Adam had been made, the animals were there, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help fitting for him or meet for him, a corresponding counterpart. And then... Verse 19, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But, note the context here, but in all of those animals, in all of those creatures that God had made, there was not found an help meet for him. There was no counterpart. There was Adam. Here comes Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. They kind of match. They look very similar. Along comes Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. They look similar. They belong together. You can see that. It's very visible. Mr. and Mrs. Crocodile. You know, watch where you watch your step. But uh, there they were, and there seemed to be an obvious counterpart in all of these animals. But after he got done naming all the animals, he was still standing there by himself. He had no counterpart. So in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we see here, last two verses of this chapter, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. And speaking of Adam and Eve, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So here it was in the Garden of Eden way God created it. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus expounded upon this. As he was speaking, the Pharisees came. Of course, they were testing him. They wanted to try to catch him in a misstatement or somewhere where they could discredit him. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause, or for any reason, for any cause? 
And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning... So where did he take them? Back to creation. Let's go back to where it started. Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said... For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and a twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Of course, if God says one thing, you can expect man to say the opposite. But there it is. That's God's design. That's what God created. It's what God intended. It is the definition of of marriage. Marriage really is, it's a good definition here, marriage is uh, of God's making, is the joining by covenant, one male and one female to become one flesh until death parts them. Now, marriage is not just for believers. When we talk about marriage, we're talking about a social institution that God designed, and regardless of whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, marriage is something that God has defined, and it is one man and one woman for life. And that's the way God designed it. Now, again, since God created marriage, He defines it. He understands uh, what He created, and He has given instruction in Scripture on how to maintain that. But the family, the family unit, really is the Foundation of civilization, the family unit. It is the seed of nations and churches. You think about the family unit and how important it is. No society, no society can endure or survive the destruction of the family. Of course, Today in our society, we see our culture doing all it can to undermine and destroy God's first institution. I mean, the family was primary. It came before human government. Okay? The family. You know, I, <clears throat> I saw an article recently written. The title of the article, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Now, when you talk about a nuclear family, it has nothing to do with a nuclear bomb or, you know, or a weapon of mass destruction. Okay? What is a nuclear family? Well, it's a mother, a father, and their children who are their dependents dwelling together. That's basically what a nuclear family is. So when you hear that term, don't think, of, well, it's the space age. We have aliens. and oh, No, it's a, the nuclear family. And here was the introductory statement to the article. The family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many. It's time to figure out, a better, figure out better ways to live together. Wow. Of all the asinine comments I've ever read, I think that's probably one of the worst. But here, here's this man's idea. The family structure that we've held up as a cultural ideal for just the past 50 years. What'd they do for the last 6,000 years, Bub? 
You know, this is not a new, uh, a new thing. But, it's, but it, it's a catastrophe for many. It's not working. So we got to figure out new ways to li- and better ways to live together. Well, it's not because the nuclear family doesn't work. Okay, it does work. When a man and a woman enter into a covenant relationship for life, it works beautifully. It works perfectly. And it's the groundwork or the the, the foundation of a healthy and thriving society, of a healthy and thriving church. Okay? The family unit. Again, our society is, and I mean, and they, I've been reading even just in the last couple of months here about the education system trying to actually destroy the Western concept of the nuclear family. You know, I won't mention the cultures in our country that are deprived of or have neglected the importance of the nuclear family. But our prisons are full of them. I remember when I used to work, go down as a chaplain to the, uh, the jail here in, in Tucson. And by far and away, the greatest percentage of those juveniles had no dad in the home. Fatherless. And their mothers worked during the day. So when they came home from school, what'd they do? They hung out with their peers. And when you put foolishness together, you don't come up with wisdom. And a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. And sadly to say, those children were there. And of course, I'm not speaking of here, you know, apart from Christianity, it's the saving grace of the Lord, but there they were as a result of the failure to preserve the family unit. They had no instruction. They were lawless. They were horrible. And they needed to be saved. But why were they there? There was no one at home to tell them no. There was no one to give them instruction, no one to give them discipline, to teach them how to behave in just a simple lawful manner. And of course, you know, the way the, the way the devil works, and the way sin is, it's kind of like a dog in a manger. The dog sits there. He's not going to eat the cattle's food, he's also not going to let the cattle come and eat it either. You know, the world looks at the Christian home and they see that it's successful. And do they glory in that, rejoice in that, and say, hey, show me how? No. They say, we're miserable, and so therefore you can't be happy either. And we're going to do everything we can to destroy your home. That's the way sin works. Sin loves misery and destruction. And so we live in a society that wants to see the destruction of what God has created as an honorable thing. And of course, here in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable. That word honorable means precious or esteemed. Held in honor. Now, it can be a statement or it can be an admonition, and either one works. But marriage is something that God designed, and it was good. When God looked at his creation, what did he say? He says, 
It was good, very good. And so here, marriage is to be something that is precious. It's to be esteemed, held in honor. Now, there have been some throughout history who have taught or thought through the misinterpretation of Scripture that somehow being single was more spiritual or a higher calling than being married. Some people have taken what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Of course, Paul was single throughout his ministry. And he says there in chapter 7 that he says, well, I would be happy for people to be even as me. Verse 8, he says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Some have interpreted that passage as to mean, well, Paul was saying it was better. Better to be uh, single. Because you could serve the Lord without the distraction of a spouse or a family. But that would go against what he also said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's warning about false teachers, those that would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, and what did they teach? Well, first thing, forbidding to marry. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God had created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Of course, this flies right against the Catholic Church and their teaching that the, those in the priesthood should be celibate. And boy, have there been problems with that? Oh, yeah. All kinds of perversions, molestations, horrible, heinous iniquity and sins because of the Catholic Church's demonic teaching that those who would be in the priesthood can't be married. That's a false teaching. It's a doctrine of devils. It's promulgated by those who have departed from the faith. And Paul gives great warning. And so to forbid in marriage is wrong. To forbid marriage. Marriage, in fact, is the illustration that God uses to typify our union with Christ. There in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning there at verse 22 and going on down through the end of the chapter, he addresses wives, he addresses husbands, and the relationship there, the marriage relationship is used to typify, to be an example of the relationship of Christ and the church. It says in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Then he addresses the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So there. Marriage. Marriage is honorable in all. It's honorable, and when it says among all or in all, it means that marriage is honorable and precious in every aspect, but it could also mean their marriage is an honorable state among all people, saved or unsaved. Again, it is an institution designed by God to be really the foundation of culture and society. It's the institution through which children come into the world, through which children are nurtured, trained up to go on and to do the same. But here it also means marriage is honorable and precious in every aspect. And really this is probably the meaning because of what follows. The next phrase in this chapter, he goes on, he says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. The physical aspect of marriage is not defiled. It is created by God. It is precious. It is honorable in the context of marriage. In the context of marriage. Of course, this is what God has designed, and what God has designed is good. And the Natural desires that God has placed in men and women were placed there by God. And there's nothing wrong with that within the context and the confines of God's law. Just like in the garden, was it wrong to eat of the fruit? No, you could have the fruit of any tree except one. So eating fruit was not sinful. It was designed by God, but there was a prohibition. And the physical aspect of the marriage relationship is designed by God. It is honorable. It is a good and righteous thing in the context of marriage. Of course, we know that the world wants to operate outside of God's boundaries. If God raises a wall, if God puts up a fence, What does the flesh want? I want out. I want on the other side. The grass has got to be greener out there. I can see it. That's the rebellion of sin. Sin wants to operate outside of the limits and the constraints that God has designed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the first five verses there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Beginning of verse 1, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. <clears throat> I teach my boys about girls as they get older. I always bring them to this verse. And that verse says, keep your hands to yourself. 
Okay? We're talking about single people here. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He goes on, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or lack of self-control. This passage here dealing with the physical aspect of the marriage relationship. God has designed it. And within the context of marriage, it is a holy thing. In fact, it talks about the selflessness of the couple. They give, the, they give each other to the other, give themselves to the other. And then in verse 5, defraud ye not the one the other. You're not to, you're not to refrain from the physical relationship unless you both agree to for a spiritual purpose. He says, except you give consent for a time that you may give yourselves a fasting and prayer, and then come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. There's temptation all the time. In our culture, we are bombarded with it. Temptations to immorality. And one of the purposes of marriage here, and he, Paul talks about this, says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. You see, in the context of marriage, the marriage bed is holy. Outside of the marriage context, it is vile, it is sinful, and it is destructive. So here the writer of Hebrews, marriage is honorable in all and undefiled, and the bed undefiled. Now it's interesting to note that as Paul speaks to People at Corinth, he addresses the unmarried, and he addresses married people. And the interesting thing there is that God has programmed the conscience of all men. The conscience really is a proof of the existence of God. God has, as it says in Romans chapter 2, God has written His law in the hearts of men. Men know that murder is wrong. Men know that the physical intimacy of marriage outside the bounds of marriage is wrong. It causes guilt and shame. And God has programmed the conscience of all men. They know that. Before marriage, by nature, man's conscience is alarmed. It is alarmed by the temptation to immorality. That's the way God has designed it. Of course, there are those who, over time, in continued disobedience, really have their consciences seared as with a hot iron, where they no longer sense the shame or the guilt, and they sin with impunity. But they still are guilty, and they reap the repercussions of that. But after marriage, isn't it interesting? The conscience no longer sounds that alarm. God has designed it that way. Did you notice what it said in Genesis chapter 2, the last verse? It said, and the man and the woman were what? They were naked 
and not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. That can only happen in the context of marriage. Outside of the context of marriage, fornication, sexual immorality of all kinds is shameful. And it causes great guilt and does harm, irreparable harm to the individual. It's important for us to recognize that. But after marriage, the conscience does not sound an alarm. Conscience is released in the context of the way God has made marriage to function. Of course, our perception can be discolored by the perversion of the world. And we must guard, we must guard ourselves against this because the world is promiscuous. The world is, you know, it's, it's not something that's hidden. The world has no shame. Even over the last several generations, there's been such a shift to where the sin is brazen, bold-faced, out in public, in your face. It's not hidden. It's not, you know, try to... They're not trying to cover it up. They want to just shove it right in your face. There's an admonition. Preserve the honor of your marriage. Preserve the preciousness of the one flesh relationship in marriage. And why? He says here, but whoremongers, that word there is fornicators. It's the same word. In fact, you might look right across the page, at least in my Bible, right across the page is chapter 12, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. Word fornicator, a male prostitute, or one who sells himself for money, or one who is immoral outside of the context of marriage. And the Bible claims that Esau was a fornicator. Now, the Bible's not specific or in what he did. We do know that he took to himself two wives of the pagan you know, nation around, and that he did not take those whom his parents would have suggested. But here... Whoremongers or fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Who are fornicators? They are those who are immoral before marriage. An adulterer is one who is unfaithful in the marriage relationship. Okay? Of course, that word fornicator refers to all manners of immorality and sexual sin. <clears throat> now, again, this warning here is not just a, a reprimand. So, oh, a caution here. No, it is talking about painful judgment, serious judgment. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. It's not God might judge, God will judge. You go back a couple of chapters in Hebrews, right in the middle of this chapter. Or Right, not really in the middle, but towards the end of the chapter. There's a list of names given in verse 32. Hebrews 11, 32. Speaking here of men whom God greatly used. But even among these men whom God greatly used, verse 32, there are two names that stand out. Men who were immoral. You see them? Verse 32 who do we see in there? Samson and David. 
Samson and David. We know both of them, we know of their sin, but did they get away with their sin? Did God judge them? Oh, yes, he did. He certainly did. And do you remember Samson? Remember, he really was kind of a ball of flesh. Went down to Timnath and saw a woman there. And came back to his parents and said, Hey, seen a woman of the Philistines? I've seen her, and she pleaseth me well. She looks good. Get her for me to wife. And I always want to add, ugh. Just sounds so caveman, you know, just, but uh, I just could just go to the club. But there he was. She looks good. Pleases me well. Get her for me to wife. And his parents said, well, hey, wait a minute. What, what about, a, why not a woman of God's people? No, no. I want her. I'm going to have her. So let's make this thing work. Well, of course, we see Samson, the loss of his spiritual leadership, the end of his life. There he was, been captured by the Philistines. And what did he lose? Not just his hair, burned out his eyes, the instruments with which he lusted after the women of the Philistines. Put hot pokers in his eyes, burned them out. And then they made him grind, grind grain there like a donkey or a mule would. We don't know how long it was, but it was long enough that his hair started growing again from being shorn. So several months probably. And then he was pretty young, probably in his 30s. He goes and the end of his life there as God grants him strength one more time, pushes the pillars and the temple came down with all the people. He perished with them. A sad end to a life that was characterized or hindered by a lack of self-control in this area. Yes, Samson reaped the judgment of God. Think of David, his sin with Bathsheba. What happened? Well, the baby that was born died. Absalom died. Amnon died, Tamar was raped, and the list goes on. His family was left in shambles. Upheaval in his kingdom. And of course, there as he recounts in his penitent psalm, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, he says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him talks about his loins being filled with a loathsome disease. He talks about his bones being broken and physical, painful judgment that God brought upon David because whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Even a David. Solomon didn't fare a whole lot better in his problems that he had going into idolatry because of his lust for women. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are also given warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
beginning at verse 15 and going through the end of the chapter. Paul says here, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? Again, referring here to sexual sin outside of marriage. He says, God forbid. God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Flee immoral sexual sin. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body, his own physical flesh. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not to take the members of Christ and join them in an immoral relationship outside of God's standards and God's bounds. It goes on in chapter 7. We read that already about the instruction he gives about marriage. But here, a great warning of course, Proverbs, chapters 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters there give such strong warning to young men. Every young man needs to be very well acquainted with those chapters. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And the warning that God gives in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, He says, <clears throat> well, if you go back to verse 3, the context... He says, for the lips of a strange woman drop as in honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of her life, her ways are movable that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her. And do not come near the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, or your wealth. I'm a wealth there. Give your honor unto others, and thy years or your strength unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed... And it's too late, and you're filled with regret, and you say, How have I hated instruction? My heart despised reproof. I've not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. There in chapter 6, verse 32 Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he is a fool. Lacketh understanding, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. It's a permanent stain. When the world talks about 
the biblical hero, the King David, what's the next word out of their mouth? Well, and Bathsheba. That's all they think about. Were there other great qualities of David? Yes, there were, but the stain was never wiped away. It's still there to this day. They're concerning an adulterer. The way this chapter finishes, it's quite a warning. He says, for jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, and this is talking about the woman's husband. Context is there is a person committing adultery with another man's wife, and the last two verses are about that. It says, For jealousy is a rage of man, therefore he, the husband of the one, will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. His desire will be what? To destroy you for what you did to his wife you will have a permanent enemy who is seeking your destruction. And you will not buy your freedom. What a warning. What warnings the Scripture gives. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 6, well, verse 5, he said, well, let's go back to verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication, abstain from sexual immorality, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel or his body in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Let me just describe that to you. That is living like an animal. Animals are not under the rules of marriage that God has for humankind. They're different. We breed dogs. And you know what? It's a perfect illustration of the way the Gentiles live. Perfect description of the way the unbelievers use their bodies. So he says, not in the lust of concupiscence or just unbridled passion and desire, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He uses that word defraud, and that word defraud means to arouse desires in someone else that cannot be righteously satisfied. You remember that defrauding someone is to arouse desires in someone that cannot be righteously satisfied. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Again, the family, the foundation of civilization. The destruction of the family is the destruction of society. And how many societies have we seen in the day in which we live in which the marriage is not upheld as honorable? Marriage is counted as something cheap. 
The eyes of man are never satisfied. And so a man does not stay with his own wife, but looks over and around for other means of satisfaction. And he's never rendered content. And the home is destroyed. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're reminded of who's behind all this. Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath he quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. This is the way you lived before salvation. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Speaking of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, or he is the one who energizes them. Among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So here's Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who empowers, energizes the children of disobedience. It's in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. Here it is. What does the God of the world do? He's blinded their minds. How do they live? They walk in the emptiness or the vanity or the worthlessness or the reprobation of their own minds. And they self-destruct. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. But it is a willful ignorance, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge because God's ways are not their ways. And God's ways condemn them. They find themselves at odds with what God demands and God requires. So, how do we... How do we keep marriage honorable and the bed undefiled? Well, we need to guard the honor, guard the preciousness of marriage. First of all, by guarding our minds. Listen, it all starts in the mind. We need to preserve and protect our mind. We've been speaking about that in the Bible study hour. What is the recipe for correct thinking? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Think on these things. We need to fill our minds with the, with the Word of God. When we do that, listen, <clears throat> when you're filling your mind with the Word of God and thinking God's thoughts, there's no room for other thoughts. It's the cleansing of the Word. Job 31 and verse 1. Men, we're sight-oriented, just like Samson. Our eyes, we have to control our eyes. And what did Job 31, Job said, 
I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think, or the word there is lust, why then should I lust upon a maid? I made a covenant with my eyes. And listen, I mean, you think about the day in which we live. If you're not constantly guarding your eyes, you are failing. Because the world has got it plastered everywhere. Okay? You cannot, you cannot walk into the mall without your eyes being offended. So what do you do? You burn it down? No, you just don't go there, okay? <laughs> so you say, well, I'll just shop online. Oh, is this, <laughs> there's, you're not free from danger there either. We got our cell phones with just a few clicks here and there. If you are not guarding your eyes, if you are not guarding your mind, you will fall. And the warning is severe. So men, we need to guard our eyes. Remember, it starts in the mind. Now, certainly, I mean, women can lust with their eyes too. But really, the scripture demonstrates that men have this problem predominantly. But not only that, <clears throat> we need to guard our appearance. We need to guard our appearance. And, what, and the scripture directly addresses women when it comes to their appearance. Now, yes, men should be clothed too. Okay? That goes without saying, but the way that God has designed us, God specifically addresses women in the way they dress. 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. It says there, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So here, the warning, proper clothing, modest, discreet, which is a characteristic of a godly woman. It doesn't mean that everyone that dresses modestly is a godly woman, but a godly woman will dress modestly. You know, what are the fashions of the world? They're designed to draw attention to the aspects of a woman's body that a man would be sexually attracted to. And that's the way the world lives. And that is not the way Christian and godly women will dress. Because the Bible says to dress modestly. Do not defraud. Do not defraud. Immodest dress defrauds men. That's a fact. And it is sinful. And I'm sure thankful for the way you ladies dress here in the church. It's a great blessing. There's a lot of places you'll go that say church on them, and you'll walk in and you think you just maybe walked into the mall or a bar or somewhere else. I mean, the, the dress is no different than what you'd see on the street. But a godly woman is going to dress in a modest, a modest and a decent way. Our appearance, we can guard 
and the honor and preciousness of marriage, by guarding our minds, by guarding our appearance. And then thirdly, having discretion, discretion in our relationships. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 2, as Paul is instructing Timothy, the young pastor there, says in verse 1, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. The elder women, respect them as mothers. How would you talk to your mother, Timothy? Is the elder women of the church? Treat them with respect. And the younger women, how would you treat them? Treat them, he says here, as sisters with all purity. The younger women as sisters with all purity. We need to have discretion in our relationships, in our communications. There's appropriate communication, and then there's also inappropriate communication. We need to make sure that our communication with one another is that which is appropriate, not inappropriate. And listen, we know what that is. So here, in the instructions that are given, it's a, it's, it's a great verse, but it, it really reinforces that which we need to be teaching our children, living out in our own lives and demonstrating in our families that indeed marriage is honorable. It is to be held in honor. It is precious. It is designed by God. And it's honorable in every aspect even the marriage bed that is precious, it is honorable, and it is designed by God. It is a holy thing in marriage. But be warned, be warned, because whoremongers and adulterers, God, not might, but will judge. You can take it to the bank. He will. So be warned. Listen, let our conversation and the way we live be such as brings honor and glory to the Lord. Listen, marriage is a wonderful thing. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to be married. Paul wasn't married. And indeed, Paul was used of God in a mighty way that he could not have been used had he been married. Can you imagine being Paul's wife? I wonder where he is tonight. What jail is he in? You know, will he get a payphone call? Can he contact me? If he'd had a wife, she'd have probably just gone crazy. Um, And and God knew that. God had other plans for Paul. But it did not mean that Paul was more spiritual than someone who is married. No, to each, every man, God has designed the proper um, way to live. Not all of us are called to do the same things. But here, again, the context of marriage. It's designed by God. It's honorable. It deserves respect and honor. And listen doesn't matter what the world wants to define and redefine. It still is what God created it to be. You can call white black, and you can call black white. doesn't change what it is. It's still what God says it is. Don't you forget it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage here before us. We thank you for the instruction that you give. Lord, may, Lord, may we have marriages that are honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, marriages that demonstrate and are truly a good picture of, Lord, the church and your relationship to the church. Lord, may we be instructing our children. May they follow in righteous steps. Lord, may we live 
within the boundaries of that which you have created good and holy. Lord, may we not live as do the Gentiles, as those who know not God, but may our lives bring credit, honor, and glory to our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.